Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. As promised, I've got our great host, Steve Krupa here. Hey, Steve. How you doing, man? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Doing, What's going on? Doing great. Getting uh, getting in the middle of the, of the Boston summer. Yes, it's beautiful. Actually, <laughs> it's cooler in Boston than in New York, I'm finding. Maybe about seven or eight degrees cooler. It's nice. Everything about Boston is cooler, Steve, than New York. Ah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> But uh, speaking of cool, you had this cool interview with uh, with Spry Health. Can you uh, talk a bit about your conversation with Pierre Jean Cabou? Yeah, so we're uh, we're taking the quantifiable self, I think, in in sort of trying to move it into more medical applications. Like everybody likes their uh, their Apple Watch and their uh, their Fitbit from a, from a standpoint of you know, sort of the healthy people keeping track of their fitness and their and, their, and maybe people are sort of on the beginning throws of trying to improve their health by watching their, their walking and so on and so forth. But uh, there's always been this notion that maybe we could make a medical-grade piece of equipment and we could use it to monitor chronically ill people and, and, and catch whatever problems might, might happen well before they actually happen in sort of a preventive way. And Spry Health is developing not only uh, the device to do that but the, uh, the computer algorithms to, to recognize when – uh, when maybe an intervention uh, is required, so kind of a cool company. Also started in in, in, in by a European, and with uh, so finding European entrepreneurism is always interesting as well, right? Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you had a, a great conversation about why the culture is, is different over there, and, and yeah. how we found its way to the U.S. And you also talked. Uh, I mean, this is a hardcore device. You you, you mentioned uh, Pierre Jean mentioned that uh, this is going to require FDA approval. So this is a yeah. this is a real deal. This isn't my little Fitbit here. It is. Uh, it's a real deal, and it'll uh, be they'll be able to label it as as a medical device. And uh, <clears throat> it sounds like a wonderful step forward. I think we're going to see over the next uh, 10, 20 years generations of these products improving for the exact purpose of being able to monitor chronic conditions. Uh, so that so that we know how people are doing when they're not in the doctor's office getting te- getting checked up. Excellent. Well, my uh, my beats per minute went up from fifty four resting to fifty six just talking about this podcast to you. So I know it's going to be a great one. That's a very good heartbeat rate. Congratulations, Tom. Thank you very much. You, you seem maybe we need to add some more stress into your life. <laughs> Would you please? Sure. sure. <laughs> Let's get into this conversation with uh, Spry Health. <laughs> Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with Pierre-Jean Cobu, the founder of Spry Health. Pierre-Jean, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. Good to have you. Um, you know, we, we will definitely recognize you for having a French name and being from Belgium right out, right out of the shoots and living in Palo Alto. So we've got, um, we've got a, lot of, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the world covered there in just a small couple of minutes, a yep. couple of seconds. Um, the interesting thing for me is always to get in, in, into the back of the mind of the entrepreneur. Um, it takes a lot of guts and a little bit of craziness uh, to start a new business. And uh, some entrepreneurs are inspired by money. Some entrepreneurs are inspired by principle. I've found it's often a combination of the two. Um, what, got you, what got you interested in starting a healthcare company? 
Yeah, I mean that's that's a long story. I think uh, you know there's there's a lot of reasons to as you said to start a company. For me, I, I started uh, getting getting interested in entrepreneurship when I was in college, um, uh, which was in Belgium, and and entrepreneurship in you know in Western Europe at least back then definitely wasn't a thing. So I was I was definitely you know the odd one out, but you know for me when I saw a lot of my classmates go into you know, investment banking or, or strategy consulting, which tended to be kind of the, the main career track. That honestly just didn't appeal to me. Um, and, and for me, it was more about, you know, what what do I want to do that will make me happy? Um, that was that was basically kind of where it all came from. And so I, as I was a college student, I, I tried a number of things, uh, you know, experimented with entrepreneurship. And, and I thought, you know, just the idea that, you know, when, you start something, you you do something. It has an immediate impact. Um, that was that was pretty exciting to me, um, and kind of having the 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 control of my own destiny, or at least the illusion of the control of my own destiny, was was pretty cool. Um, I, I didn't I didn't go straight into entrepreneurship when I when I get out of college, and I you know worked in you know big corporate America for for about three years. Um, and you know, in, a, in a sense, that that was helpful to me because it showed me, you know, a lot of things I didn't want to do. It, it taught me a lot of good things. So you know, I'm not I'm not unhappy I did it. But but it was clear to me that the big corporate um, you know process and, and structure was was never going to be satisfying to me. So I, I I actually started my first company while I was um, um, in a, in a traditional corporate job, and I was I was living in. Um, Switzerland, which you know is not a super exciting place. I had plenty of time, um, and so the, the the time I did spend on my first company, which which eventually went nowhere, but but the time I spent on it really reinforced for me the you know how much how much I really cared about this this process of entrepreneurship and how much I wanted to do that. And so as as um, as I you know realized the corporate career was going nowhere, and I, and I was not interested in it. As I realized my first startup wasn't going to go anywhere. Um, I decided I, I wanted to um, come back to the States where I had lived um, a few years before. Um, sort of decided to, to go into an MBA program, mostly as an excuse to be here um, in Silicon Valley and, and, you know, meet a lot of great people, um, but with the, the strong intention to, to really use that as, as a way to start a company here. Um, and so for me, the, you know, I, I I was never in healthcare before I started this company, um, minus maybe you know I, I was part of a I was a pre med in college. I had decided I didn't want to go to medical school, but so for me healthcare was kind of you know something I thought about for a long time. Um, but when I when I did get here and I and I started to explore you know ideas of of where to build a business, healthcare was really my priority, and and the reason simply. You know, this is in my mind. It's the industry where you can have the most impact. And for me, um, and for my co-founder, this is this is still really what motivates us every single day. Is the the kind of the size of the impact we can have, and you know, the number of lives we can touch and and improve. Um, and it and it really is an industry where I think you you can still build you know large impactful companies be, because the system you know is is flawed and is as a result is full of opportunities. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, a couple of comments there. First of all, you, you know, you really have a lot of nerve wanting to do something that would make you happy. I don't know where you get that idea I from. Know, right? It's like... What a thought. <laughs> 
But I am kind of curious. I'm sure when you got here, did you go to Stanford or Berkeley or one of those good schools out there? I did, yeah. I went to Stanford. So it's sort of like, yeah, okay. So you, so you get to Stanford and all of a sudden, like, everybody around you wants to be a mantra, uh, an entrepreneur. But I'm very – and that must have been, like, fun for you to sort of discover, you know, people just like you. But I'm very curious about why entrepreneurship, uh, particularly when, when you were sort of getting exposed in the education in Belgium, why is entrepreneurship not a big deal in Europe or wasn't a big deal? I, th- I honestly think it's still sure. not a big deal, uh, but I don't really understand why. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, it just comes down to it's, it's a cultural thing. Um, I think pe- people there just, just care about other things. Um, you know, when I when I see the work my dad does, for instance, you know, he's he's a CEO of a, of a company there, and I feel like a lot of the things he does are about kind of firefighting and, and you know, trying to prevent things from getting worse. Um, whereas here I get to work on things to make them better, which is a small difference, but it's, it's actually pretty meaningful and pretty telling in my, in my opinion. And so, you know, in Western Europe, I think pe- people aren't necessarily motivated by creating change. Um, I think people care more about you know, having a balanced lifestyle, for instance, which is, which is totally fine. Um, I think it really is a choice. Um, but for me, you know, I, I, I think maybe that's what sort of sparked this, um, in, in the early days was I cared. I, I, I realized I didn't care about the balanced lifestyle as much <laughs> as I cared about building things and, and creating change and, and improvement, um, and, you know, growing a company and hiring people, you know, that's really what, what drives me and what motivates me. And it's, you know, as you said, like when, when I got to Stanford and I found a lot of people who were quote unquote like me, like that was, I actually remember that feeling of, you know, it's like, Oh, I'm home now. Right. And that was definitely, definitely a big, a big change. And then, you know, very rewarding for sure. (laughs) Well, yeah, you don't see that like, uh, on a job resume, right. Uh, Interested in pursuing no, entrepreneurship don't. and a balanced lifestyle. Doesn't happen. Yeah, no, no, no not really a thing. Um, I, one more, one more sort of just thing that I noticed that you, you said that, you know, the, the idea of entrepreneurship and the idea of sort of controlling your own destiny. And I always say that entrepreneurs believe they're controlling their own destiny until they meet their first venture capitalist. And then they begin to wonder. <laughs> I'll let that one go. Fair Considering, I, I am sure that you've met a few. We'll take a quick break from this conversation to let you know that we have another great keynote lined up for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, someone who's become kind of a hero of mine of late. So you should be there as well. Go to dhis.net to register. The uh, registrations are doing very well. We sold out last year, so uh, I advise you not to wait. Please do go to dhis.net to register to attend the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's happening on October 11th in Boston. Now let's get back into this conversation. Um, so let's go back to, you know, um, you know, decision to be an entrepreneur was a young thing. You go to Stanford, all of a sudden you're in like a class and I don't really know what the percentage of the Stanford business school graduates go into entrepreneurship, but I would imagine it's disproportionately higher than maybe under the, uh, some of the other business schools that are out there. And, you know, when I went to business school, I went to Wharton and who now has a competing mm-hmm. campus out there in San Francisco with uh, Stanford and so yeah. forth. But, um, it was an okay percentage. It was probably, you know, 10 or 15 or 20% of, of my class ultimately went into some form of entrepreneurship or venture capital. Um, 
But while you were sort of like looking around, you, a you you know you're competing for ideas with everybody else who wants to do this. You land on healthcare. So tell me, tell me the uh, what what was the advent, if you will, of Spry Health? Um, when did this come to you, and and how did it get to you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a combination of things. Um, I mean, the the, the first I re- and really the the major thing was meeting my my co-founder, who who was a classmate and and came from a very different background. Um, was born and raised in Israel. Um, worked in R and D for the military. You know, so came with a kind of a heavy scientific and technical background, and I came more from a you know traditional business background, and so. Us getting together and 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 talking about all that could be, I think it was really the, you know, the 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 very start of this, and you know, the rest and the, the specifics of of landing in you know the, this idea and starting to execute on it and what what became this company, um, it was it was a couple of things. One is you know just personal experience and and having seen family members struggle with with chronic illness. Um, and and kind of what is an absurdity of of, of medicine um, in in my mind, um, which is when when I saw, for instance, my my dad um, struggling with with hypertension. You know, I would see him um, go to the physician's office. You know, one day they would measure his blood pressure, get one data point, and then make a decision on you know some medication that he should try. And then he would go home and try that for two to three months, and then he'd go back to the physician's office. They would take another blood pressure measurement um, with two points. The only thing you can do, do is is draw a straight line, um, and then make another decision on well, maybe we should change this or change that. Try this new new drug. Stop using this one. Um, and it basically took like a year and a half to get his hypertension under control. And so that that idea, and you know, there, there were others, and you know, a lot of other conversations too. But um, you know, it, it made us realize that in in the traditional healthcare system, there are these huge gaps, right? If if you have if you're someone who's you know not very healthy, you know, maybe a little older. Um, socially isolated, you're struggling with a chronic condition or two or more. Um, seeing a physician for 10 minutes, uh, three or four times a year, um, having decisions made on on that little bit of quantitative and qualitative data, and then having this enormous gap of three months just doesn't make any sense. Because the reality is, with that little bit of data, it's impossible for us to know how, how people are really doing. It's impossible for us to know um, what does normal look like for them? Uh, what is the the baseline? What is the trajectory? What are the ups and downs? And, and you know, versus kind of the the example I was giving earlier, what we know for sure is that it's not a straight line. Um, and so we we felt like, you know, the fact that this information wasn't being captured anywhere, that no one had visibility on how you know these these people that are a little more vulnerable are doing. That is what is creating a lot of the issues that that the system is dealing with, um, you know, especially around cost control. You know, you have the, the this population that is um, that is at risk that shows up at the ER several times a year, ends up being admitted, um, and and that you know is is generating you know 50 percent, 60 percent of all of healthcare costs. And and the reality is, with better information. We should be able to to avoid a lot of that, um, 
which obviously is, is great for patients because you know, the hospital is no place for a sick person, uh, but then also for, for the system, um, getting these costs under control um, would, would also be um, a good thing. So that's kind of what we started to think a lot about is how do we bridge those gaps? How do we create um, relevant information um, about these people that are at higher risk for hospitalizations? That, that's really what, what, what started this. So go into, go into the company for me, describe the company for our listeners and how you came about either discovering or developing the technology that you're using as part of the company. So, so the, what, what Spry Health does is basically we help um, healthcare organizations and in and, and particular payers um, by predicting the progression of disease and the real-time clinical risk of their um, high-risk patients or high-risk members. So think people with, with chronic illnesses or um, other high utilizers of the system or people who are at, at sort of temporary high risk, for instance, because they've just been discharged from the hospital. Um, so the idea is we, we provide them with um, what is basically an IoT platform. Um, and the, the platform basically has kind of three, three different um, um, areas. One is um, a wearable um, that we provide to, uh, to these patients. And, and so here, think about, you know, the ease of use and the convenience of a Fitbit, uh, but uh, is really a uh, medical device in disguise. And so what, what it does is it's, it's, it's basically it's a fancy, you know, data acquisition tool. Um, it uses um, a, an optical sensor to gather um, clinical data from the patient in a way that is completely passive, um, and it does this around the clock. Um, and so we collect data like uh, blood pressure, um, respiration, um, um, SpO2 heart rate, um, and a, about another dozen um, physiologic parameters. Um, and, and then, you know, as we, as we collect all of this data, um, from from patients, we we push that to kind of the second part of our of our product architecture, which is um, our back end. And so there, we we do a lot of analysis with this you know with this data that we collect um, continuously. Um, and and the type of analysis we do, you know, it's it's less about trying to diagnose people with new conditions. You know, usually we'll know pretty well uh, what. Um, you know, what conditions the specific patient will have. But instead, what we're trying to do is understand, um, you know, what does a normal day look like for this person with their individual set of circumstances, um, you know, their specific conditions, uh, what, what is the baseline here? Um, and then we try to understand uh, when there are subtle changes um, from that baseline um, and, and if we can spot any specific trend um, that is basically predictive of, you know, something bad that's about to happen. And that's the kind of information that we then push um, on our software front end, which is what basically clinical users and payers are using. Um, and the information we provide them with is basically, you know, a, a color coding of their patient population. So we'll show them, you know, here today are, you know, two to three or four or five patients that are color coded red, meaning these are people that are at higher risk right now. Um, and the idea is to help them have that visibility, have this line of sight on all of their patients that are high risk so that when something doesn't look quite right, 
um, they can basically direct the right resources to that specific patient at, um, at that specific time. And to really be, be able to be, you know, w within the context of chronic illness, be able to be preventative, um, get to the person before, um, you know, something bad really happens and before calling 911 and making a trip to the hospital is really the only option. And so it's basically trying to, you know, give them that, that information, um, help them act, um, not replace the physician, but really arm them with an additional um, decision support tool, tool that is, uh, you know, real time. So to talk to me about the, the optical device, was this something that you guys built? Was it something that you discovered on, on, you know, on campus? Was it something you hired somebody to build for you? Where did it come from? How unique is it relative to competitive devices in the marketplace? Sure. So, the, you know, the, the kind of, and this is sort of where our core technology really is. Um, it's less about the, the hardware and the sensor, but more about kind of what you do with the information that you're basically the optical signals that we're able to acquire. Um, and so the genesis of that technology actually came from uh, my co-founder's um, uh, research. Um, he, you know, he, he just spent a lot of time in um, image processing and image analysis. Um, and he had done some um, academic work on um, non-invasive glucose sensing, which he concluded, you know, was was something, you know, that probably wasn't going to happen in the next, you know, 20 or 30 years, um, just because there, there's a lot of moving pieces and it's an incredibly complicated problem. But his thought was, you know, there are probably other sort of meaningful parameters we could capture from the bloodstream using an optical sensor um, that, you know, currently, you know, aren't being captured. Um, and so that was really sort of where this came from. So it wasn't something that was developed here in, in the academic world, um, but it's something we developed on our own. Um, and it's really where, you know, as we, as we started to grow the company, as we hired more people, that's really where we invested, uh, you know, most of our time. We've been, you know, we've been a company now for almost four years. Um, and out of the, you know, four years, it's been, you know, maybe three and a half years of R&D to, to get this technology to, to a point where it's been validated against, um, you know, against gold standards. And is this something you ultimately believe you will need to get a device label from the FDA on, or is it more of a consumer type product? No, it's, it definitely does require um, FDA clearance. So we, we have submitted with the FDA. Um, we're expecting uh, to be cleared, you know, hopefully end of Q3 this year. Um, and I think, you know, it, there's, you know, I, I hear a lot of companies talk about healthcare here in Silicon Valley in particular, but it's, it's always interesting to me that everybody wants to do healthcare without the regulatory hurdles. Yeah, that's right. If you want to create, you know, if you want to build a meaningful healthcare product, um, you, you have to go through FDA. And I think it is, you know, you, you, can, you can see it as a hurdle, as something that takes time and resources. But, but I kind of try to look at it from the, from the other side, which is, you know, it is a necessary process because we have to protect patients. We have to be able to provide them with products that are really, really high quality. And once you are FDA cleared, it is a massive competitive advantage. So um, how far along have you gone in terms of uh, your, the use of the device with actual patients? Have you, have you been able to, other than, you know, friends and family, have you, have you gotten people using it and what results have you gotten? Yeah. So we, um, you know, 
we just for context, we we've had this product now at sort of a you know relatively finished um, stage since late last year. Um, and so with with the product, we we've done extensive um, clinical validation. Uh, we we just finished a a very large uh, blood pressure trial where we monitored um, about 240 patients um, versus an arterial line, so really kind of using the absolute best, uh, well, the gold standard for, for blood pressure monitoring and doing a site. You know, anywhere between 500 to 1,000 people. Um, and as, as we're now kind of wrapping up, you know, this, this part of the company's, um, you know, journey, now we're starting to put this on patients uh, where, where it's really meant to be, meaning, you know, we're providing the, the wearables to people so that they can, you know, wear them in, in their daily lives, and we're starting to get data um, you know, both clinical and like, how is this, you know, working out from a, from a clinical standpoint and how is this helping healthcare organizations, but also uh, from a usability standpoint. And so we're, we're really just starting to deploy this now um, with different um, healthcare organizations. Um, and I think we'll start to get meaningful data on, on uh, you know, usability and, and outcomes improvement um, that this, this leads to probably, you know, sometimes in the summer. So how, how do you see the, this going to market? Do you see it as something you would <clears throat> market to health plans or to physicians, hospital groups, or individual consumers? Um, what, do you, what do you see as the sort of path to generating uh, revenue here? So when, when, we, when we were, you know, we, we started this with a vision, um, you know, with, with an idea of, of you know, bridging these, these care gaps and, and building an enormous data set that would lead to, uh, you know, massive medical discoveries. Um, and we started with this idea of, you know, wanting to be impactful for people that are really struggling, um, you know, as opposed to the, the wearable companies that are building gadgets for, for the fit and, 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 and wealthy. Um, and, and so when we were starting to think about the go-to-market, you know, we had a, a list of of um, assumptions that needed to be true in order for us to to be convinced that this was the right go-to-market strategy. You know, for instance, we wanted to be able to um, build the largest data set possible as quickly as possible. Um, we also, you know, we, we have basically completely excluded doing um, direct-to-consumer um, 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 go-to-market strategy. We wanted to be able to create a product that would um, that would not be you know a traditional med device uh, type sale um, and instead you know be able to to work on a, on a subscription fee for the information that we create and so you know all of these plus others you know led us to basically you know just follow the money and see you know who has the highest in incentives for keeping people out of the hospital where can we create a win-win between the, the paying customer and the patient. And so as a result, we, we, we decided the best fit um, was with payers, um, you know, either health plans that, that are providing some of the care, so basically, you know, have the financial incentives 
but also understand the realities of, of providing care or, you know, integrated providers or, or that type of um, that type of group or, you know, Medicare Advantage plan, et cetera, et cetera. And so these are, these are kind of the, the organizations that now we're starting to, um, to work with um, and also where we're getting, you know, a good amount of traction sim- simply because, you know, these organizations really get it. Like it's, it's, there's this sort of underlying trend that care is moving to the home and it's sort of inevitable and everybody knows that's the right thing to do. Um, but, but you can't do that if you have no idea of, you know, what's happening to, to people. And so these organizations, they see that. Um, they also know that cost control is, is a, you know, strategic priority basically every single year. And then they get our approach. They get that, you know, we're building a device for patients that is really easy, that doesn't stigmatize them as, you know, being sick, that is delivering them value, providing them with information that empowers them. Uh, but then they also understand the type of data that we generate and how to use that data and how we're automating the the analysis of the data. So there's kind of a lot of trust, I think, that we've been able to build with, with the approach we're taking. Very cool. Very cool. So we're uh, bumping up against our time. So I want to thank you for joining. Um, so how are you getting out there? Can you know? I'm sure people will be interested in getting some more information about what you're up to. I know you've got a website, sprihealth.com. Are you guys doing any blogging or Twitter or anything like that that people can sort of uh, begin to follow you on? Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, you know, we're pretty active on Twitter. Um, you know, posting a lot of company news. You know, we try to we try to talk to as many people as we possibly can. You know, I, healthcare is, is a team sport, and so we, you know, we try to engage with academia on top of you know our, our you know potential customers. And uh, we just released uh, a few weeks ago, um, you know, a grant that, that we're putting out for for academic researchers to work with us on, you know, understanding chronic disease better. Um, so we, we have a lot going on that, that we that we share mostly on, on Twitter um, and, and LinkedIn as well, um, including some content that we're, we're putting out. So what is, do you have a specific Twitter handle or is it just Spry Health, at Spry Health? Or? Yep, it's um, underscore Spry Health. Cool. Well, very good. Thank you for, uh, for joining me and uh, we'll be following you to see how you do. Really appreciate the time. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks for joining us on this week's Breaking Health Podcast. Thanks also to everyone who has subscribed to the Breaking Health Podcast. If you haven't done so, please do. We'll send future podcasts directly to your listening device. We appreciate it. Also, if you give us some rankings on uh, on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast, that helps folks find the podcast. Of course, tell your friends. Let them know what we're discussing here on the Breaking Health Podcast. If you're enjoying it, no doubt they will too. Finally, reach out to me directly. I'm on Twitter. You can be reached at MedTechTom. That is at MedTechTom. You can also find me the old-fashioned way on email, tom at healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. Healthag is the producer of this and many other fine podcasts and great events like the upcoming Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit, which is happening on October 11th in Boston. Please register for that sooner rather than later. This one does sell out. Go to dhis.net to register for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. You'll join us in Boston, my hometown.